Oh, are we going to have a cool little like theme song intro? Absolutely. Welcome to the Old Growth Podcast with Julia and Eric. Uh, this is our first episode ever, and uh, we're going to be starting with a little introduction of each of us and then talk about our plans and goals for the podcast and why we're podcasting. Um and yeah, everything like that. Uh, so Julia, you want to start with your inter- introduction? Sure. Hello, I'm Julia, um, one of the co-producers of this podcast. I am going to be a senior at Penn State. I am the editor-in-chief of the newspaper there. I am an aspiring environmental lawyer. I currently am an environmental science major. Um, and yeah, that's... Basically it. I like music too. (laughs) Excellent. Um, I'm Eric, also the co-producer. And this week I'll be editing. We'll be swapping between who edits the podcast every week. Um, Eventually we'll also have guests as well. So our credit lists will get a a little bit longer. Um, But I uh, work at the Tom Ridge Environmental Center. I help run the big green screen theater there. Uh, I also run a photography and design business on the side. And that has turned into also making podcasts. Um, so a little disclaimer, uh, we plan for this podcast to be as nonpartisan and as objective as possible. We'll do our best to present information that's factually and scientifically based. And we will also discuss varying viewpoints and present them as objectively as possible. So because we're talking about environment and environmentalism and environmental activism, which are most of the topics for this podcast, um, politics ends up coming into that just naturally, um, but our intention is not to be a political podcast, just to give you guys a little bit of a disclaimer. Um, so what kind of topic would you want to start with? Um, should we go over the motivation for the podcast? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think our main motivation for doing this is just to share knowledge and create a unique podcast that we don't really see being out there right now. And just to share information about all these different topics um, that are related to the environment that we deem important enough to discuss for a period of time. Yeah. And, um, as sort of our long-term schedule, we're planning to start this out as a bi-weekly podcast. So we'll record one week, edit the next week and submit it. Um, but I know schedules get busy, especially with Julia with school. So we may end up dropping that down to a monthly podcast, um, depending on how things go, but we will keep you informed and you'll obviously know because you won't see a podcast or you will see a podcast, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we'll let you know ahead of time what we're planning on doing. So do you want me to go over just a brief explanation of environmental history? Yeah, I, I will say <laughs> I might have to rely on Julia a lot for a, a lot of the technical details because <laughs> I am not an environmental major. I went to school for software engineering and communications. So I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm the baby scientist. I'll so. be referring to the, to our expert in the room. <laughs> Uh, So, yeah, so let's go over a brief environmental policy history. All right, so just a bit of a framework for where we're going to be starting, because environmentalism, at least in the United States, well, the United States is fairly young, but environmentalism is a fairly new concept um, around the world and in this country. So we're going to be focusing on the United States mostly. Like, if we're talking about policy or anything, it will be United States-based, unless we say otherwise. So just briefly... The conservation and preservation movement was really like a transcendentalist idea that like Thoreau can be it can be attributed to, to Thoreau and also to John Muir, who's a pretty important guy, 
uh, pretty cool. You could look them up. So Teddy Roosevelt established five national parks and signed the Antiquities Act that created 18 national monuments, including the Grand Canyon, and set aside land for bird sanctuaries, game refuges, and national forests. So then Woodrow Wilson, um, who was president, founded the National Park Service in 1916, which is a huge step for uh, conservation and preservation. So then we'll skip forward to 1962 when Rachel Carson's book Silent Spring was published, and this is about uh, mostly about pesticides and most notably DDT. This spurred the modern envi environmental movement. So then the Clean Air Act uh, was passed in 1963, which is a pretty important piece of legislation. And then the Cuyahoga River caught on fire multiple times um, in the late 60s. So this really called to action the need for um, environmental protection and for people to stop dumping all their waste into rivers. So then the Love Canal site was is also another um, important thing that happened to spur the movement. So it was this site that was toxic and then these people covered it with dirt and sold it to a school. And then after the school was built, the students began to be, be sick. Um, so then it was discovered that this was toxic ground and this led to the founding of like uh, fixing Superfund sites, so toxic waste sites that the government has to re remediate. So then the 1970s is really when the modern environmental movement was born, and that's there's a lot of social change around that time, so it fit in with a lot of the other uh, things that were going on. So January 1st, 1970, NEPA, which is the National Environmental Protection Act, uh, went into, was signed into law. So this is, makes federal agencies have to get any project they have assessed before doing it uh, for the environmental impact. So then the first Earth Day was April 22nd, 1970. The, EP the EPA was founded, the Environmental Protection Agency was founded December 2nd, 1970. And then after that, we have the Clean Water Act of 1972, the U.S. Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972, and then the D Endangered Species Act of 1973. So then, since then, like around the, the early 1990s, and up until now, we've had a number of international agreements, and the most recent is the Paris Climate Accord in 2015. Yeah, so there's a lot of topics that we'll be kind of going over in detail over the next season. Um, and then on top of that, we're planning on talking about different issues in general, like the things that seem to happen before people get motivated to do any change with the environmental activism or um, issues with how environments, environmental topics are educated to people, uh, versus how they used to be educated issues with, um, scientific studies. And, uh, I think we have a interesting link actually coming up about, um, replicability in science. Um, we'll be talking about that a little bit. Um, yeah. And so one of the things we wanted to talk about was like how science works into all of this and, you know, because a lot of people who just see studies after studies on in the media, like in a newspaper or something, the study says this, study says coffee will give me cancer, study says coffee will save my life. Um, it's it's kind of hard to have that communication between how scientists work and how people ingest that information and are able to understand it. Um, so we kind of want to go over a little bit over like the scientific process and how that works. Um, and how that fits into enacting environmental policy. Uh, so we have a, a little link here from uh, 
University of, it's the University of Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, about how the peer review process works in science. Uh, do you want to start on that? Um, so this is just a bullet, like a numbered list of what happens in the peer review process. Very basic um, explanation. So a group of scientists completes a study. So there's all different standards for actually doing research, but we're not going to go into that right now. Basically, the group of scientists, we're going to assume they follow all the ethical standards and they do everything that they're supposed to according to the standards that we've set in this in this around the world and with their institution. So the group of scientists completes a study and writes it up in the form of an article. They submit it to a journal for publication. So then the journal's editors, and depending on the topic, will de- determine what journal it is submitted to. So the journal's editors send the article to several other scientists who work in the same field. And this is where the term peer review comes from because they're um, considered peers in research. So then those reviewers provide feedback on the article and tell the editor whether or not they think the study is of high enough quality to be published. So then the authors may then revise their article and resubmit it for consideration. And then only the articles that meet good scientific standards um, are accepted for publication. So this is a way of maintaining a high quality product and also making sure that people do their science properly and that if there's any sort of discrepancies, whether it's a mistake, um, like just an accident on part of the researchers in putting together their study, or if it's an actual like design issue that that can also be addressed by people in the same field. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent little overview of it. Um, and some interesting points of where this can have issues is that there are levels of quality of journals. Um, and there's actually a pretty good, uh, video on YouTube from John Oliver that came mm-hmm. out a couple of years ago. I was talking about peer reviewed studies. Um, and how I, I know for a lot of universities, like professors to keep their jobs, they have to get published every so often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so what that can kind of push people to do is to kind of just get stuff published out there just so as like, you know, a ticking the box on requirements and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think it might be an interesting discussion to sometime talk about the motivations behind publishing um, and the type of reward system that is in place mm-hmm. for it. Uh, Cause that's, it can sometimes cause issues. Um, but overall the process is for at least for the high quality journals, very, very good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, very sound process. Yeah. It, it's just whenever we throw these human elements into stuff like this, <laughs> yeah. we find good ways of like screwing it up. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I don't want to go too deep into that right now. Yeah. So then one of the important pieces of research that's been a discussion topic recently is the re- replicability of studies. So this is basically like you should be able to design a study so that it can be done again by a different researcher to like validate your results. Um, so like with the coffee example, if one person in England does that study and they find, uh, that coffee is good for you based on whatever parameters they set, someone else should be able to read their paper and redo that study, um, just by reading their paper and to validate their results to make sure that their results weren't a fluke or that there was some sort of issue with their methods. Um, and this is an issue because things change so rapidly like if you're studying something that's fleeting it can be hard to replicate studies 
So one of my professors at school had us read this article from Science about replicability um, and how it's a normal and essential part of science, according to a Dutch science academy. So it just talks about how scientists and universities, uh, funding agencies and journals should do more to make sure that science, that the science they're funding is uh, replicable. There we go. (laughs) Um, I've been avoiding saying the word. That's how much (laughs) I'm like scared of it. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I I found it interesting that he points out in the article that they should be putting more funding into just doing replication studies. I think that's Mm -hmm. huge because um, there's, there is a lack of motivation to do replication studies because no one really gets any fame or fortune from doing something again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh, I, rep- I reproved this. Oh, whoop-de-doo is what a lot of people feel. But um, we really need to be pushing that to keep things strong because especially in some fields like psychology, which changes so much so mm-hmm. rapidly, they can, they've had studies that they've never been able to replicate after the first time. And it was like groundbreaking. Um so it's very important to be able to do a study over and over again. Um, and that does, in a way, depend on the type of study. But um, uh, in general, I do I do agree with their idea of adding an extra funding for it. Although I feel like that's going to be hard to do practically. Because, mm-hmm. you know, for most organizations that do funding or provide grants to places, they want something that's going to be new and cool. Um, so... Uh, that's an issue I think would be interesting to see how they'd end up doing it in the future. Yeah, because there's definitely an incentive, like, societally to do novel research. And also, it's just, like, as an individual, it's more fun to do do what you think is cool and what you, like, a question that you have that you want to answer. But it's definitely important in order to maintain this system that we have and to make sure that our results are accurate and... Um, that they're like correct to our best ability that we redo these studies to make sure that this wasn't just a fluke in what we did. So yeah, definitely an interesting thing that I'm sure we'll see more of. Um, but we're also in a tight spot now with the federal funding to science. So it all, yeah, <laughs> it's, just, it's just weird because, you know, if you're going to spend money on doing studies, You've, and you have a limited amount. You want to do it on something that could be new. Mm-hmm. So I, I like I, I understand the struggle with that. Um, I, yeah, and a lot of that comes to like just having to put more value into being able to replicate a study and showing that it can be done. Um, and maybe that's partially society, partially just you know a lack of funding for things. Um, but it's definitely something that would. Uh, be useful to look into yeah that also kind of comes back to the issue of doing research for like pure create like pure knowledge or doing it to solve an issue because some people are of one camp some people of other but ideally we'd have a mix of research because a lot of research is just out of wanting to know the answer to something just for the sake of knowing often leads to useful things in society so that's another thing with getting funding. It's hard to justify. Oh, I just want to do this study because I want to. I just rather want to learn. Than, yeah. Yeah. Rather than I want to do this to solve an issue, which has definitely become more the focus of a lot of research. And I think a lot of that 
eventually pulls into another issue with just environmentalism in general or science in general, it becomes an issue to the layperson where like, I'm just worried about putting food on the table. Why mm-hmm. do I care about any of this? Yeah. Um, you know, why should any funding go towards it? Cause we have people who starve and everything. Um, so I, I understand people struggle with that internally with dealing with that. But, you know, it's something that we're going to have to work on <laughs> because yeah. uh, when it comes to things like the environment, you know, once you screw it up, it's, yeah. it's, it takes a very long time to fix it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I kind of put an analogy to like, like I've been starting to like get fit lately. I've been trying to work out and stuff and watch what I eat and everything. Um, you know, getting myself to a bad health state was not that hard. <laughs> crawling back from it is a very long process oh yeah and it takes a lot of work even after you get there you have to maintain it um so it it's it's gonna be a bit of an uphill battle but i think Mm -hmm. yeah and that's a hard argument to make too is that it's worth it to stop something that hasn't happened yet yeah like yeah oh with climate change how do we how do you tell people that they need to invest in it now when they don't see the real effects in their backyard yeah. Or at least they don't attribute it to climate change. <laughs> yeah. That, and, so, and part of that's part of the issue. Um, th- and I do think that'll be something we go into too, specifically around climate change, because it's such a, like a hot topic. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> pun. pun. I'm going to intend it now. It wasn't to start with, but I'm going to intend it now. Um, but issues like that, where we have not only issues with, you know, just doing peer reviewed studies in itself and, but having an anti-information campaign also going along mm-hmm. with that. Oh, yeah. um, that'll be something we'll definitely dive into. Uh, and that might, that's just going to naturally end up being a more political podcast. Yeah, from that. the rhetoric but, of both but, sides. <laughs> yeah. But we'll, we'll try and keep everything as objective as we can. Um, part of that comes with like education of envir- environmental issues. Um, so th- we have an extra link here mm-hmm. about uh, teaching this year's natural disasters. This is from the Atlantic. Um, it's talking a bit about how some teachers are starting to use current natural disasters that happen, like uh, the volcano blowing up in Hawaii was the an, uh, recent one, or the eruption in Hawaii, um, and using that to uh, as classroom material to show how processes happen and everything. Um, and some people... I did see some issues. People had some issues with it because they were saying that, oh, well, you're like minimizing the tragedy of some of these people's lives and everything. But they, the Atlantic makes the case that, you know, these things are going to happen no matter what. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you're, we're not going to, for some environmental issues like a volcano erupting, we're not going to stop it. Yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's instead of like focusing on just the tragedy of it, we can use it as a, learning teachable moment to show like this is how these processes happen this is what this happens you know and you can use that to talk about like this is why these policies are enacted to prevent this this and this from happening and this is where these policies either failed to help that or whether where they succeeded um so a very interesting little uh story about that and we will have links to all of these articles in Mm -hmm. the show notes um, and you'll find those all on etdphotography.com, I think is where we're going to currently host the podcast. I'll have a special blog link on there for it. And then all the episodes will be in one place. Um, 
Is there any other topics we wanted to go over today, or did you have any thing that you um, wanted to say about the Atlantic article? Yeah, I just thought it was interesting how a lot of schools are now integrating environmental education into their core curriculum, which was not has not been the case uh, at all. And a lot of most places, I know I didn't learn very much <laughs> about the environment except for just like biology, and we re- learned about recycling. Um, but I definitely think that's becoming more of a fourth like at the forefront of people's minds um although this this article focuses on california and california is generally more progressive than the rest of the country but still it was interesting to me just how the the teacher was talking about it and how they now mandate this education so the uh the environmental education coordinator in the county was just talking about how these students are experiencing these different issues like drought uh, and the fires and that the students see it, but then that school, they can draw these connections to why these things are happening. So that it's just like a, they're taking an opportunity to teach students things. Um, so I think that's just awesome. I mean, we should do more integrative learning. I was nodding, but no one can see that. I agree with you. <laughs> Eric's nodding. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that is a pretty good intro to everything and all the stuff we want to do. Uh, I, I will be happy to take suggestions from yeah. people if you have anything in particular <laughs> you want to talk about. Um, you can contact us either on the etdphotography.com website. Um, you can contact me personally on Twitter at underscore or at dilated aperture. So thank you for listening, everyone. Old Growth Podcast is produced by Julie Guerin and Eric Dye. This week's episode was edited by Eric. Do-do. And we have outro music play. Some funky like, jazz or something. Like... Wait, let me get... What would environmental-themed music sound like? <laughs> Should just have nature sounds, like whooshing water or something? <laughs> No, I want just the screech. Like that. <laughs> Is that a particular animal a bird or something? <laughs> I just looked up a random one. Oh. <laughs> I want like a screech. Not for real, but just for fun right now. I could put the mic up to my stomach. It'll screech soon enough. <laughs> Go. Go.